For the, the last few weeks, we've been learning together from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. But as I've already said, we're going to take a, a little bit of a break from Galatians this evening. We're going to look at a couple of chapters of, of 1 Samuel. And as I've already said, the, the thing that we're going to be thinking about is listening to God. Uh, when I heard Graham preaching this morning, he and I hadn't planned that uh, that there'd be any sense of continuity between uh, his subject in the morning and mine in the evening, but I have a really strong sense of of God bringing these two messages together to, to teach us something that, that's important for us just now. Listening to God's been a subject that's been very much in my mind throughout 2008, 2009, because I personally want to learn how to do this certainly better than than I've ever been able to or or have been doing it in my life before. But I don't sense that I'm on my own in this. We had an elders conference here on on Monday night just past where we set aside an evening to pray and and to talk through some very open-ended questions uh, about the life of this congregation and, and the ways in which we sensed that God's Spirit was prompting us and leading us. So I, I think the, the leadership in this church, our, our elders, are our, our men and women who, who want to learn to listen to God. As a congregation, we're involved in a church community and change process. And for, for quite a few months now, since January really, we've been in the listening phase of that process. Now, that's simply a time when we have said that we don't know all the answers. We don't know exactly how we should be taking the good news of Jesus in word and deed to our neighborhood. But we're willing to listen. We want to learn. So I hope that at least in some measure, that the minister and the elders and this congregation that collectively we're people who want to learn to listen to God. Listening to God is crucial. Failure to listen to God is calamitous. And we're going to see that just now as we look together at God's Word. I've already invited you to have open 1 Samuel chapter 3 before you. Please do have that. Although we're going to focus on chapter 3 and it's sort of the, the centerpiece I'm actually going to spend a bit of time building up to it in the context. For all that chapter 3 is quite well known, chapter 2, I would suspect, is very badly known uh, to you, but it, it provides a, a very crucial context. Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel tells the story of Hannah, her longing to have a son, and in the end she promises, after years of prayer, she promises God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you as a priest. He'll serve in the temple. And true to her promise, Hannah left her young son Samuel at the temple. And we read in chapter 2 verse 11 that the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. So that gets us up and running. And now we're going to start to, to look at a sort of a mini drama from here to the end of chapter 3. There's kind of a mini drama of three acts, each with two scenes. Our short drama begins 
in chapter 2, verse 12, Act 1, Scene 1, if you like, <clears throat> we're told there that the sons of Eli the priest were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. So it's not a very healthy start. Not a great character reference. What's the problem here? Why, why are these sons of Eli judged so badly? Well, we need to just skim through here and, and see what's happening as the action unfolds. There's a strange story here about a meat and a fork. It was the tradition in Israel that priests would get their meals from the sacrificial offerings that people brought to the temple or to the sanctuary. So at Shiloh, where our drama unfolds, the custom was that a fork would be stuck into a pot of meat at random. Whatever piece of meat stuck to the fork and came out was given to the priest to eat. That's how it worked, or that's how it was supposed to work. The fat, however, which was regarded in those days as, as the best part of the meat, the fat was always kept back and burned as a sacrifice to the Lord. That was the procedure. That was supposed to be the practice. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't fancy that. They didn't fancy the lottery of taking whatever meat came to them. They didn't want to be left with a stewing steak when they could have the sirloin. So they took the thing into their own hands. We read in verse 16 that they, they met the people, they intimidated them to get the meat off them before it went into the pot. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Now, because it's a very strange story, it's quite hard for us to take this very seriously and to see the, the scale of, of what's going on here. But we see here that their behavior angered God. And the reason it angered God is that they're clearly treating God with contempt. Look at verse 17. This, son of, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. That was Act 1, Scene 1. In verse 18, the narrative moves to Samuel, Scene 2 of this first act. It's in this same environment with old Eli and his corrupt sons that Samuel serves his apprenticeship, learning to be a priest. Now, on paper, you'd think a temple would be the perfect place to learn to obey God, to be faithful to God, to be nurtured in your walk with God, to learn holiness. The perfect place to live well before God. Wrong. We've already seen what's going on in the sanctuary at Shiloh. It's full of corruption. Now, now that story, it, it might come as a surprise to us to see that kind of stuff going on right at the heart, right in the middle of the temple. But it shouldn't. Any one of us working in a church or close to the life of a church wouldn't be surprised. The church is far from perfect. Speaking of the church, Eugene Peterson warns, holy places provide convenient cover for unholy ambitions. They always have and they always will. So while Eli's sons were concentrating on getting the right meat and they're corrupt to the core, we read in chapter 2, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. 
Samuel was working for God. His mom, Hannah, kept contact through these boy, boyish years of Samuel's. She brought a new priestly robe every year to keep up with his growth spurts. So even though there's corruption all around him in Shiloh, we read in verse 21 that Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Act 1 in two scenes. As we move to the second act, we go back to Hophni and Phinehas because although we've heard some pretty discouraging stuff about them, we've only, we haven't heard the half of it just yet. Their greed with the sacrifices is only the tip of the iceberg. Act 2, the drama begins in verse 22. We learn of more corruptions. They're caught up this time in a sex scandal. Not hard to imagine the headlines in the Shiloh Times. These priests have been sleeping with women who served at the temple. In the immediate vicinity around Shiloh, promiscuity was an important part of pagan worship. In pagan religions, the priests were entitled to sex as part of the worship rituals. So Hophni and Phinehas here are simply wanting a little bit of what everyone else around them was getting. They wanted to be priests of God, but at the same time, they wanted to serve themselves. They wanted to have their cake and eat it. Eli tried to talk to them, but they wouldn't listen. So again, scene one of this second act is about more corruption in in Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. Meanwhile, in scene two of the same act, verse 26, we're told about Samuel, Hannah's son, that he continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and men. We know that he was growing physically. His growing robes tell us that. But he was also growing spiritually, Samuel, in favor with God and men. So in this second act, the contrast between Samuel, Samuel on the one hand, and Hophni and Phinehas on the other is heightened. The corruption in the temple just couldn't go on. And this is what brings us in the end to Act 3. <coughs> A prophet comes to Eli and we read of it in verses 27 to 36 of chapter 2. the prophet reads the riot act to Eli. He does this because Eli has been so irresponsible. He's been irresponsible as a priest, yes, but also as a parent. Eli was a priest of God and his sons were priests. He should have looked over their work and watched over them, but he did not. Eli was a negligent father too. These two priests were his sons. He should have been a a better father to them and watched over them as they fell into disgrace. So the prophet foretells a time in the near future when priesthood's going to pass out of the family, when Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. And it's all sobering stuff. The only scrap of encouragement that we get here in this message from the prophet comes in verse 35. He says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest 
The Lord speaks and says, one who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. God's going to raise up a new priest. One who will serve God and not himself. And because we have seen the other strand of the story unfold, because we've seen scene two of each act, we know who the new priest's going to be. Step forward, Samuel. And now we come to the, the final scene, Act 3, Scene 2. And it's the passage that we read a moment ago. The whole of chapter 3 tells the story. <coughs> we read there the story of a young boy, Samuel, hearing God's voice in the night. And the focal point's right in the middle. Verse 10. The young boy speaks these beautiful words. Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. There's a a few interesting things that go on in this, this very clever biblical story. First of all, the irony that the old experienced priest, the so called mentor, doesn't get what's going on, can't hear God's voice, but it's the young boy, the young apprentice, who does. Eli's described here as nearly blind, his eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see. So Eli's not just physically blind. He's blind and he's deaf to God. He's oblivious to the rebellion of his sons. And even when he does decide to confront them, he's too weak. It's too late to do anything about it. Contrast that with Samuel. Samuel's alert. He's growing in the presence of God. He hears God even in the middle of the night. At first, he doesn't recognize God's voice. He's not, it's not always easy for us to recognize the voice of God. Three times Samuel gets it wrong, but soon, with Eli's help, he recognizes that it's God who's speaking to him. And even though it must have been very difficult for him, he passes on faithfully the message that God asked him to give At the end of our passage, look at chapter 3, verse 19. We read that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. His prophecies came true. Soon everyone in the land realized that Samuel was a prophet of God. He was somebody who listened to God. Somebody who passed on only what he heard from God. Folks, we have looked at that story. We've seen how it works. The contrasts that it establishes between one who listens to God and those around him who don't. But this is our story. And it's a story that we must enter into. As the drama unfolds in this story, God's word asks a question of each one of us. Which part am I playing Which of these roles have I taken? Am I a Hophni or a Phinehas? One who has begun to work for God, maybe with real enthusiasm, but over time, all that I've become concerned with is what I'm getting out of it myself. I started out wanting to serve others in the name of Christ, but now all I'm interested in is how they will serve me. 
I don't listen to God. I have no interest in what God would have to say. Am I an Eli? Just going through the motions. I've been in this business for so long that maybe I feel like a know-it-all. God himself has nothing to teach me. Have I lost the capacity to hear God? Have I become blind and deaf to what God's trying to tell me? There's a third and a much more inspiring alternative in this story. And it's, of course, uh, the, the role that Samuel took up and played. Wouldn't it be great if, if instead of taking the way of Eli or of his sons, we took on the role of Samuel here at Kirkpatrick Memorial? Wouldn't it be great if the minister and the elders and the congregation in this place were collectively a community that said, Speak, Lord. Your servants are hearing. We're listening. We're all ears to what you're telling us and asking us to do. All sounds wonderful and ideal and a little ethereal just now. I thought I'd spend the last few minutes of our time this evening sharing a recent experience of how I've been trying to do this and some personal reflections on that experience. The experience I want to share with you is the the recent appointment that we've made in in our church's life here of Steve. Steve's sitting here, so it's kind of funny to be talking about. Uh, I'm talking more about the process that we followed to make that appointment of a ministry coordinator here in our church life. It was a very long process. We've been talking about this post. It probably took us about a year from starting to talk about it in the Kirk session, in in the church committee, to get some approval at Presbytery, to get other approvals centrally in the Presbyterian church, to go for some legal advice, to do the advertising, the interviews, and so on. A long, long process. And there was a lot at stake, we felt. I personally felt there was a lot at stake. I, I was going to have a colleague in a, in a staff team of two and a half. I mean, that's important that you get that kind of appointment right. For the sake of the whole congregation, we felt that there was a lot at stake. We want to, to bring good and godly people in to work here among you. So I personally, and I think others of us in the leadership, felt a, a burden of seeking God's will and God's ways. And it was so tempting, and it is so tempting, to take control of a situation like that. To pull all the right strings, to manipulate things so that the outcomes are exactly those that you would choose for yourself. But the question that kept coming back to me is, how can we do that and claim to be listening to God How do we live listening to God if the whole world unfolds always exactly as we intend it to? 
If we always manipulate everything, organize everything, and control everything. It got me thinking about prayer. What does it mean to pray as we did? We prayed, I prayed personally, we prayed in our Kirk session, we invited you in the congregation to pray. What does it mean to pray, Lord, please bring us the right person? And at the same time to go out and sort it all yourself. What does prayer mean in that context? If anything. Friends, prayer and and manipulation cannot live together. Prayer and ruling the world yourself cannot coincide. That doesn't make sense. And the reason, the reason I found myself thinking along these lines, I've been part of communities which made a great song and dance about public prayer, and then behind the schemes, all the strings were being pulled. Every deal was being done. Everything was being set up as though God didn't exist. What does it mean to listen to God? Either we listen to God or we don't. We've got to be honest about that. This this experience has got me reflecting too on on how we think about God's word. How how we respond to to God's word as we read it and, and hear it preached. The first thing I'd want to say to a community like this is I just want to, I want to affirm you for the, the sense of anticipation that there is in this place to hear God's word. I love preaching here. I've forgotten what it's like to preach in the average Presbyterian church. Do you know what it's like to go and preach in the average Presbyterian church? You get up, you come to the lectern here, and everybody's, you know pulling out the sweets, getting, getting ready to pass the next 25 minutes because, goodness, if there's one thing I don't want, it's to listen to God's word. I'm not interested. I don't want to know. Get it over with, pastor, minister. Get us out of here with the Sunday lunch to be getting on with. Folks, that's not, that's not Kirkpatrick. It, it's lovely to preach here. Because many and most of us are, are, are people who sincerely want to, to hear what God is saying. But what does it mean to hear God's word? What does it mean to be an evangelical? Somebody who claims to build their life on this revealed will of God in scripture. If we don't do what it teaches Friends, we we must learn to obey more and more what God shows us in his word. Jesus puts it very plainly, and it's a verse that's beginning to, to become very crucial in my life. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's kind of simple. You know, if you're really convinced by who I am, by what I'm doing in the world, if you've grown to love me, you'll start to do the things that I call you to do. 
Friends, I think there's a wonderful listening to God's word here in our congregation. And I want, I want us to nurture that. Do you know how we can nurture that? We can nurture it by obedience. If we obey the things that God has already shown us, then we place ourselves in a wonderful position to hear more from him. That's the kind of community that God will continue to speak to, that he'll continue to bless, that he'll continue to feed on his word. It's the one that's already responded to what he's shown us. Friends, we've been thinking here this evening about what it means to listen to God. That, that passage in first, or the, those two chapters of 1 Samuel, it shows us the stakes. This is no trivial matter. Those who, who refuse to listen to God or those who grow careless in their listening to God fail in, in ministry. But those who, like Samuel, pay attention, flourish, and grow well. Friends, it seems to me this evening that not everyone who takes the name Christian listens to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many who claim the the name of Jesus but don't pay a blind bit of attention to what Jesus actually says. Hophni and Phinehas are alive and well in the church of 2009. It might just be that Eli is running quite a lot of congregations. It's often the case that God is speaking and that no one is listening. Friends, we want, don't we? We want something different. We want something better. We want to be like the young boy Samuel, young men and women who hear God's voice when he speaks to us. Remember, this is going to take time to learn. We won't recognize God's voice immediately. We won't, we won't always understand it exactly in the first instance. We won't always be sure of where it's going to take us in the long run. But we will listen. We will pay attention. We'll obey those things that have become clear to us. It's my prayer that Kirkpatrick Memorial will be a place where the minister and the Kirk session and members throughout the congregation will join together where they'll speak with one voice and they'll say, Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you on a weekly basis for your word and all that you teach us through it. Lord, we thank you too for the other ways in which you speak to us by the direct promptings of your spirit, by a word from a friend or a circumstance in our lives. Lord, we live in a life 
where if we pay attention, we know that you do speak to us. Lord, help us not to play games with you. Help us not to, to act as though we're, we're obedient listening people when, when clearly we have no intention. Help us instead to hunger and to thirst after you. Help us to learn to discern your voice, to recognize it as yours, and to obey it. Lord, make us, individually and collectively, people who listen to you. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen.